Happening now, we want to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good evening. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the fabulous state virtual school located in Missoula, Montana, USA. And I am joining you tonight from Smoky, Missoula, where we have several wildfires that are... Um, uh, uh, literally fired up around the city. So it's pretty smoky outside. It's been pretty hot, uh, mid nineties, upper nineties for the last two or three weeks. And so I am hiding tonight, um, in my basement, hoping to, uh, chill out a little bit as it were. And joining me as always, uh, who is not in his normal location tonight, Dr. Wes Fryer. Good evening, Wes. How you doing? Good evening. I'm joining tonight from Burlington, Vermont, where my wife and I are having a chance to attend the Create, Make, and Learn Institute, and it has been delightfully cool, a respite from what you would normally think would be high temperatures in Oklahoma, but we actually looked today, and it was like in the 80s and 70s, and so I guess maybe they're getting a bit of a cold front. But um, yeah, excited to join, and very, very apologetic that last week I fell into a hole, as it were, as it were with... Um, yeah, a project that just, I sort of lost sense of all space and time. So, Jason, for, for leaving him hanging, I will try not to stand you up anymore, Jason, for the EdTech Situation Room. And I'm sure, you know, we had we had thousands that were hanging with bated breath wondering what had happened. But I do apologize to everybody. It was my fault. Well, I, I still am quite delighted that you got stuck into a WordPress project and your head was so deep into it that time and space didn't seem to matter. So I, I love projects like that, and I love that you get, get stuck in something like that. So um, we got a lot of interesting ed tech news to go through tonight. Um, I would imagine that we won't get through um, even a small percentage of our links tonight. And by the way, if you're interested in seeing the source articles that kind of guide our discussion, you can go to our web website, www.edtechsr.com, where we always post each week's links. And there's always way more than we have the time to go through. Sometimes we're able to recycle those links to future weeks, and sometimes we're not. So, uh, Wes, lots of interesting discussions we can start with tonight. Where would you like to take us first? Well, actually, let's go to an article from uh, yesterday that just dropped in Ars Technica. After three years, iPad sales are up again for Apple. And I know that at our school, um, there have been a few iPad purchases, uh, actually for our family. You know, the fact this is the first time ever that I'm aware of that the price of the iPad, uh, the low-end iPad, actually went down as the memory and capability went up. So Apple is no longer selling 16-gig iPads. 32-gig is the minimum. And there's the two different lines, uh, what's, I guess, called the fifth-generation iPad and then the iPad Pro. But, uh, it, you know, says it was... Impressive third quarter financials, higher higher uh, than predicted. So, Jason, are, are you uh, are you on the edge of a new Mac purchase with some of the challenges that you've had with your connectivity lately? <laughs> with technology lately, I am not. Although um, I do think it is super interesting that the iPad did receive an uptick in sales, and I still think one of the biggest problems with Apple in sales in the iPad. It's not that the iPad isn't awesome. I still think it, it is by far the best-in-class device, right? There is no tablet, in my humble opinion, that comes even close to the functionality and um, kind of long-term usage of an iPad. But I think the problem that I've seen with iPads is that 
they're just too they're just too sturdy, right? That if you keep yours in protective case, or if you're not clumsy, then an iPad can. I think. Well, I know people that are very successfully running iPad twos, which would be are those. 2011 devices is that right 2011 2012 it'd be 2011 because 2010 was the uh, first ipad right so these are the second generation devices we are many devices ahead now and i still know people that are very successful using their ipad too um and and don't seem to be experiencing anything that you might otherwise experience with an, a six-year-old piece of hardware and that's a really impressive feat on apple's part that they managed to create something that seems like it has such long-term stability. And I think because of that, a lot of folks that otherwise might update pretty frequently in the curve aren't doing so. And in fact, I my iPad is a Mini 2, which I believe is a three-year-old product now. Um, I find the iPad Air uh, uh, form factor be compelling. I find the iPad Air 2 form factor to be compelling. I find the new iPad Pro is in their larger size to be a compelling form factor. But to be quite frank, my Mini 2 does exactly what I need my iPad to do, and not even just consumption-wise, but also functionality-wise. And um, Apple, um, you know, should be complimented. It's one of the many products that has a long uh, a lifespan. MacBooks can last forever. Mac desktops can last forever. The higher-end hardware, the software compatibility help that. But I do think it's encouraging for Apple that that's ticked up. Are you I dropped considering another- updates? Oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm actually on my wife's MacBook Air, so uh, she has gone to work for our school and just happened to be cycling in at the time of the five-year refresh. So I had had actually a few issues with the um, smaller MacBook that I think has the A7 processor with just, just with the Google Hangout, sometimes it getting, getting pretty hot. Um, but no, there's not. We, we did upgrade my son or our son's phone. Uh, he'd have been having some trouble with GPS and we got stuff reset. So I think of our rising eighth grader who feels that she has been, you know, slighted as, as getting all the hand-me-down phones. Uh, there aren't any other foreseeable iOS updates or, or, or uh, iPad updates. Um, I will say, though, that on the same note of Apple revenue and thinking about Apple, you know, finance and business, um, you might have heard in the last couple, well, week, I guess, this kerfluffle over Tim Cook, Apple CEO, and Donald Trump and what supposedly – uh, Cook had said to Trump, and I, I dropped the Mac Observer article from August 1st, uh, Tim Cook on Trump's Apple factory statement, let's talk about something else. And so I, I heard a few different podcasts talk about this, and it's kind of confusion over what Apple agreed to do. The consensus I heard more on tech podcasts was, you know, Apple is going to continue to, you know, have – have devices produced where it's where it's less expensive, which is probably going to mean mainly China. But I think they have announced an opening of a new factory in India. However, some things may be put together in the United States. And so, you know, where you open an Apple product that says designed in California, I think it was on the Clockwise podcast. Somebody was joking. They say designed in California, man, you know, manufactured in China, assembled, you know, back in the USA or, or, or whatever. But um, I, I think that in terms of educational impact, you know, Apple is a huge player. Network effects are at play. We're not going to see Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, really be displaced from their behemoth um, 
you know, spots. Um, but on the same economic note, I guess I heard that, did you get this? Jeff Bezos surpassed Bill Gates as the wealthiest individual in the world. So while, yep. there, while there's not going to be displacement and any of these companies go off the map, you know, former CEO of Microsoft has now been officially displaced by, by Amazon CEO. So I don't know. Do you think any of this economics has, has implications for schools at this point? I do. Um, I, I think that, uh, well, I mean, let's say, you know, going back to Steve Jobs for, for a moment, um, Steve Jobs uh, told um, uh, his biographer uh, with the, the, the great Steve Jobs biography that, that those jobs were lost because the, not only because they'd be hard to bring them back, but because that American consumers wouldn't put up with the expense of a $1,500, $2,000 iPhone, right? And if you think about that, that's also true of iPads. It's also true of, of, of laptops. It's also true of, of, of Mac desktops, right? And where it does, does impact schools is that there are a lot of people that think that Apple is too uh, grandiose of a purchase for a school because of the premium price you pay for those products. I would argue to you, you can get more uh, lifetime-wise uh, out of uh, a typical Apple product than a cheaper uh, plasticity, not a uh, very updatable Windows product, but you know that's a discussion we could have another time. But you know, if if iPads cost fifteen hundred dollars uh, at minimum, that is going to create a disincentive to put those devices in school. And you know, and I got to say, Apple used to be pretty good about creating. Um, devices uh, at the kind of medium end to, to deal with schools. Uh, you may remember back to the um, the roundish white plastic MacBook. It was the last. Uh, it was a work, workhorse. Workhorse. Yeah, it was amazing. And the best part about it was was that you know, yeah, you lose the metal and the pretty design, but that plastic case was pretty ballistic. And if it broke, people stuck duct tape on it and it worked just fine, right? It was a very ballistic machine. And Apple's not really doing that anymore. You could argue that the newer iPad, the cheaper newer iPad um, is maybe an attempt at a play in education, but Apple's just not doing that anymore. And so if, you know, a manufacturing play you know, does bring jobs back to the United States, but then dramatically increases the price of those products, that's that's not going to help schools either. And there's a balance there. I'm just not sure if I understand where it's at. I will say that, that the price drop that we've seen in the iPad is a pretty big deal. You know, when you look at Chromebooks and yep. uh, this conference or institute that I, I'm attending right now, uh, which, by the way, just phenomenal, um, you know, Gary Steger and Sylvia uh, Martinez put on uh, a great, Modern, um, what is it called? Constructing Modern Knowledge Conference. I think that's in uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, every year, which I have not attended, but is um, they they have phenomenal speakers, and I've heard you know good things about their their experience. There's a few more STEM things popping up. Anyway, the preponderance of teachers here are in schools, mainly in Vermont, that have more definitely more i more Chromebooks than they do iPads, and so the two days of media. Uh, making that I was leading were focused mainly on folks that have iPads and, or sorry, I keep on saying iPads because I got them on the mind on Chromebooks. And so we were creating media with Wii video. I had a chance to really get in depth and use the green screen and, and do some collaborative projects. And, you know, app, Apple is, is feeling the heat from Google. And so I think that the reduction in cost of the iPad was a factor driving these, these um, sales in, that they had. 
But like, like you mentioned, Jason, the fact that, that Apple devices last so long is wonderful, wonderful for us as consumers. And if we choose to buy these devices at, at school, it's, it's great. But from Apple's bottom line, that means there's less churn in their, you know, uh, production um, cycles as far as when you're going to be refreshing. So right. we want to, we want to welcome uh, Jamie Camp and Peggy George who are live in our chat room and welcome anybody else who would like to, if you're going to watch us live, you are watching us live, um, join in in the chat, let us know you're there and uh, chime in with any, any questions or comments uh, that you have. So Jamie, I was asking if they were going to, contemplate any upgrades and Jamie says she's been kicking around the idea of getting an iMac but she's just used a, a MacBook Pro and the old one's reaching an age where it needs to be replaced and Peggy is looking at an upgrade for her iPad but she's still using an older MacBook Pro so we've put some SSDs some solid state drives in older MacBooks and uh, you know have them continuing on and aren't going to probably be keeping them for 10 more years but they're going to work for you know, the foreseeable, you know, two to three years. And, and then we'll just have to kind of see what else happens in the marketplace because there's a lot going on. Have you, by the way, Jason, gotten a hold of a win a Microsoft um, uh, laptop running this uh, Windows S or whatever the yeah, special Windows 10 S? Um, no, I've not. And I've actually worked at this a little bit and I've been trying to work some of my back channel contacts um, to see if I can get even a preview uh, edition of one. Um, I'm not in the market for a thousand dollar Windows 10s device, uh, even though I hear that those new Windows lap or the Surface laptops are really fine pieces of hardware, from my understanding, nice and sturdy. Um, although many of the the consumer tech reviewers have said that the first thing they did after an hour or two of frustration with Windows 10s is did the conversion to Windows 10 Pro. Um, and found it to be a, a better piece of hardware from that, but I have not yet. And I'm guessing that probably my first access to one will be one of the low-end ones uh, that Dell, HP, um, I believe Lenovo is is all committed to putting out low-cost Windows 10 S devices aimed at schools. Um, which does remind me of something, Wes, that you had mentioned earlier that I, I think is an important part of this discussion. You know, when you're buying a $100 Chromebook, it's an amazing bargain. Don't get me wrong, right? The things you can do on a hundred dollar Chromebook um, is is well exceeds the hundred dollars you're paying for it. But a hundred dollar Chromebook becomes much less usable much more quickly than the twelve hundred dollar uh, MacBook Air, where you are going to have you know five, six, seven years worth of, of of use in it for the typical user. Um, whereas a Chromebook, as over time, will will continue to receive updates um, until it's 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 end of life policy from Google. And right now, that amount of time for new Chromebooks is six and a half years after release. They'll release new updates, but you know the software keeps getting more complex. Uh, uh, Chrome compels you to update the latest version. You don't have a choice in that matter. Which means that if the software becomes too complex for the hardware that you have at, at two or three years old, uh, there's a lot of chipsets that are sold with cheap Chromebooks that aren't super great at multitasking. They aren't great at productivity. They aren't great at having a YouTube video and a, a, a Google Doc in the background. You're going to find that $100 purchase isn't going to get you very far. And I think that's an important piece of this discussion. And here's a huge thing that comes to mind, having just, you know, been working with, with teachers largely on Chromebooks for, you know, Monday and Tuesday. 
Please, please, if you're using a Chromebook, install Tab Suspender or another extension which automatically suspends tabs that you have open and are not using because uh, there were numerous teachers in the workshops that had maybe 20 at the extreme tabs open in the Chromebook and then we're having trouble and things were crawling and I was like let's close all your tabs except for you know, we video and Google Drive. And then have you heard of Tab Suspender? You know, sharing that with everybody. Uh, ben Wilkoff shared that maybe three or four years ago at a Colorado Google Summit. And that has absolutely been one of my key um, tabs that even on the Mac using Chrome dramatically increases the speed. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's exciting to see, I guess, the, the, the low common denominator, the low bar of expectation rise for devices. Um, but, you know, we don't need to descend down to the 2009 era of netbooks where things were so sluggish and, and you know, poorly capable that we really couldn't do what we needed to do, you know, with them. Um, so, but I think technology is on our side with that and schools, yeah. you know, processors are just going to continue to get faster and faster. And the need to have a niche device that does more than the web is going to continue to be smaller and smaller. And I, yeah. I am more convinced than ever that there's multiple ways to, to look at blended learning and one-to-one and technology device, but we're in a multi-device world. And so looking at a Chromebook as a basic level device and then supplementing that either with smartphones that students provide themselves or iPads, or they might be Android tablets, although I haven't had any experience at all managing those or hearing people have positive experiences with management. Of course, Apple can be challenging too, but I just, I, that's kind of what I, what I foresee. And, uh, I can't disclose, uh, lots of details, but I, I'm going to be doing more and more thinking and work along these lines professionally, uh, you know, looking at numbers and, and, and looking at some proposals, which I'll hopefully be able to disclose, you know, in, in a few months. Um, and that, so that's kind of some, I think about one-to-one. So Jason, you want to take us to another article? We're actually, we started a little bit late, so we're not quite halfway through, but we've got a, we've got a ton on the plate. So I didn't mean to dominate it with, with Apple talk tonight. Quite right. I think it's an important story. So uh, let's let's talk about this one because I thought it was a, a pretty interesting piece. Um, this is from Ed Search on um, uh, uh, July 17th. The headline is, um, how much do educators care about ed tech efficacy? Um, less than you might think. And this really great article uh, goes through a, a study um, that talks about um, uh, how much teachers care about how much research goes into the technology tools are adopted by their classrooms, schools, and districts. And the study itself goes into some detail about the notion of um, that teachers didn't seem to care all that much and that it wasn't either um, extremely important or very important that uh, there, there was some research backing of, of the tools that they were adopting in their classrooms. And I found this to be quite fascinating for a couple of different reasons. The first one is that I do feel like that we're in an environment where um, uh, people like to use research sometimes as a bludgeon 
um, to, uh, you know, push or shoehorn their view into a conversation. Um, unfortunately, that research isn't an actual citation of a real study. It's just the comment that research says X or research says Y. Um, so that, I think, is an interesting juxtaposition to this particular study's claim. But the second piece of that is that I do wonder uh, quite a bit how much vendor speak, vendor marketing, vendor influence on districts is driving more decisions related to purchasing of technology tools than actual evidence of effectiveness in the classroom environment. So I guess I'd start with Wes. Do you feel like that that this research uh, is is uh, uh, true to your reality? Do people take uh, efficacy in mind when adopting tools? Well, by defining efficacy here, I think they're looking at you know peer reviewed journal articles, um, and really those don't add much weight. I think in the world in which I live, uh, in an ideal sense, they should. You know, we should all be very attuned to what the latest research is is doing. I think that reports from the trenches, you know, peer schools, other folks in similar situations who who are using devices, who've tried things, um, you know, probably, you know, definitely have a bigger impact. Um, you know, it's, and it's networking. It's trusted people in my network who, you know, have had experiences, good or bad, and, and have uh, recommendations to make. I think those are the ones that have more sway than articles that I might read, especially journal articles. So yeah, this wasn't, wasn't a surprise to me. And I agree with your comment that I think oftentimes research can be used as a bludgeon and people will pull it out at a convenient time to say, well, the research is said, but you know, I just, there's, I think there's still a pretty big disconnect and you're in the middle of this, Jason, not to say that yeah. you criticize your program in academia writ large because you're <laughs> waiting to get that doctorate soon. And I know there's lots of people on, you know, your committee and your future, you know, anyway, who are listening tonight. Um, but yeah, this isn't, I'm not saying anything people don't generally acknowledge. There, there can be some large gaps between higher education and between K-12. And I think we have an ongoing need to, you know, bring those worlds of research and practice together and um, perhaps this article is a reflection of that, saying that, yeah, a lot of practitioners are not looking at, at those those research articles. Sure. And then I would also add to that that, you know, you always want to be mindful of the quality of the research that you're citing. And in fact, even when a vendor comes in and provides you a number of research citations, and I will tell you, I've had some experience with that with uh, various interactive whiteboard uh, sales folk uh, that will cite a number of studies that prove the efficacy of their particular product in a classroom environment. And one of the, the two questions I immediately ask when that's happening is first, you know, actually read the research. And if you haven't done so, uh, you should do so before you cite it. Uh, a lot of research is not great. And a lot of research is based off of maybe situations that are too far from your own, which means they, they don't provide a lot of generalizability to your instance or your implementation in the classroom. The second piece is, is that there is a lot of research that is academic research. I'll put that in quotation marks um, that uh, is funded by someone who has an interest in the outcome of that research. Even even university research occasionally will have a funder 
that has a, you know, very, um, a big stake in the outcome of that research. And so, you know, I, I, I think it's a balancing act, as you suggest, Wes, that you, you, you know, you have to use your gut sometimes and you have to innovate sometimes by going against what the conventional wisdom, the research proven conventional wisdom might say. But at the same time, um, you know, you should be looking at what, uh, you know, peer science uh, has to offer you and then balance those things between the two. So interesting story, I thought. I want to give a shout out to Vicki Sedgwick, who's joining us in the chat room. We got a lively chat room tonight. So thank you all so much for for uh, chiming in. And we want to remind everybody we're about halfway through the show. You can access all the links. And I know there's probably going to be a bunch tonight, especially that we don't have time to talk about. So those we, we discuss and those we don't at edtechsr.com slash links. And I would like to jump down to one that'll try to change the topic quite a bit. Um, the title is Genetically Modified Moth may soon be coming to New York crops. And this was in Smithsonian Magazine back in July, on July 11th, 2017. And we have talked before on the show a little bit about genomics and about STEM and about the importance of helping students know about these kinds of careers. And uh, the article is, is saying that there are, there's a lot of damage being caused by this diamondback moth. And so the, there's a company that's had success in some other countries, uh, putting a modified version of a particular insect into the population where, um, the gene, there's a new, a different gene or a gene modification. It spreads among male moths, um, and then it kills female moths and eventually the moth population crumbles because their ability to, to replicate, you know, has been uh, devastated by this genetic manipulation. Um, the company is called, I guess, Oxtic. I don't know how to pronounce that. O-X-I-T-E-C. Um, they've been doing engineered mosquitoes in Brazil, Panama and on Grand Cayman. And so now, uh, and there's also exper experiments coming to uh, parts of um, Western Australia with the Mediterranean fruit fly. So um, I had a great conversation tonight with uh, Sarah Sutter and some others that are here for our conference. Sarah is at a American school in Tokyo where they have a synthetic, um, what does she call it? A synthetic, bio synthetic genetics course where the students are doing just amazing stuff and doing a year long project and working with Harvard. And, you know, I'm like, Oh my gosh, I wish my kids could take something like that. So uh, we were talking about not only the future employability of students who are in, you know, uh, chemistry, biology, the, the, the connection between technology and biology, but we're also talking about DNA testing and stuff like that. So what do you think, Jason? Have, have you sent off your DNA for, for testing? Uh, and do you have any strong opinions about genetic modification of moths or other insects coming to you soon in Missoula? Um, I, I, so I'll, I'll admit I am extremely tempted by 23andMe, which is the at-home really? test, um, and I'll admit that I've been sucked in by the advertising uh, that talks about, you know, what are your genetic ancestors. Um, I, you know, I, I do have some, some folks in my family that are really into genealogy, and so I have a basic idea of our storyline, but I'm pretty sure that there's some interesting slices in my genetics that aren't, aren't accounted for in, um, any of my, um, uh, any of those efforts for genealogy. But, 
Um, as I've spoken in the past on the podcast, um, I am someone that, that, that experiences significant chronic health problems. Um, I am very much on the mend. I had a kidney transplant two years ago um, from a, a childhood ailment that wasn't discovered until I was an adult. And so I'm a little sensitive to the notion of having medical-like data in a service that I don't directly control. Now, that said, um, you know, the great thing about it is that I could tomorrow decide that I'm going to sign up for 23andMe and just use completely fake information except my actual DNA, and then they wouldn't know who I am. And so it's it's all good to go. So there's some consumer power there. But um, I still think there's a lot of unanswered questions that we need to, um, you know, come to terms with before I'm comfortable with a, a lot of the genetic uh, modification um, questions um, that that are ahead of us, and some of you uh, may have read also today that there's a uh, there was a release of um, a research study that has been talked about uh, uh, for the last week or so, and the actual study is released today. And I want to make sure I get this right. Um, I read it in the New York Times this morning, but um, they've announced that there was uh, actual genetic editing uh, that was successful, and I want to get this right because I don't. I understand the science super well. So I'm going to pause for just a moment and grab the actual article. Yeah, the article is titled, In Breakthrough, Scientists Edit a Dangerous Mutation from yes. Genes. Scientists for the first time have successfully edited genes in human embryos to repair a common mutation, producing apparently healthy embryos, according to a study published on Wednesday. Yep. And um, and it it just so happens Welcome I was directing that twenty first century, absolutely. Sorry. And you know, well, that's quite all right. Well, and and you know, and, and that that inspires a lot of interesting you know dreaming actually, and and some nightmares too. But like there's there's a, a lot of interesting pieces there, and the science is going to necessarily work in a faster way than the F ethics around it right and so it, it, it's not too soon at all i think to start you know having a, a a set of careful conversations about what this means and what the rules are for this and putting it into place um you know not unlike you know how we've been caught a little bit off guard the last 20 years by how technology's impacted our culture we have to have the same conversations around that particular technology so some connections to that i uh, we've talked on the show at, at length about the importance of ethics and STEM and, you know, whether we're talking about coding and the folks that are running startups and developing our social media platforms or whether it's in this, this arena of, um, you know, biology and technology, we need to be talking about ethics. I had an opportunity a few weeks ago to be in St. Mary's, Kansas, which is just 30 miles from my, my hometown where my parents live, at a wonderful little, little uh, week-long conference called Cave8. And one of the uh, techs at the St. Mary's School has been in his um, an undergraduate program, and I was thrilled to hear him talk about how his professor was putting in different case studies of ethics involving coding and what they would do or they wouldn't do, or you know if there was a line where things would be crossed depending upon whether it involved privacy and and you know personal information that they were obtaining or, you know, kids or different kinds of scenarios. So that's something that I've mentioned and talked about. And it was just great to hear about uh, a, a professor, you know, this was at a community college in Kansas who is doing that kind of thing. So 
that's that is not something I don't think that's going to be in the curriculum. But maybe maybe it can fit in through digital citizenship. I don't know. I'm not sure what the entry point for that would be. Um, you know, maybe maybe it's health education. Um, I don't know how many. Do you, do you know anybody, Jason, that has actually done the 23andMe and gotten the responses? I don't think I know anybody who's done that, or at least that's told me. I, I know two people that have done it, and both of them were science teachers, and so I think they had kind of an academic interest in the concept uh, as much as a personal interest. And, um, you know, I, there is a lot of things you agree to um, when you do that particular service. Uh, I, it, I've heard some people refer to it as a bit of a privacy challenge uh, from that standpoint, but the bottom line is, is that, you know, um, in the same way that you know, genetics has kind of changed the way we look at biology over the last 25 years. And in fact, um, a, a, a lot of biology teachers have explained to me that the way we teach biology has evolved quite dramatically in the last 15 years due to genetics. Um, you know, we it's it's a, a an area that has so much potential to provide you insight on on you and your health and and and, and the way you're built. I think we're going to have a hard time stopping people um from uh, taking advantage of that information, whether it's positively or negatively. So, yeah, there's some ethics discussions that need to go on here. Um, I'm not sure if they're happening in a way yet that that uh, uh, are as fast as the technology is developing. Probably good things. Well, I don't know if there's good things or not. They say don't talk about religion and politics, uh, you know, in mixed company. But I think about, you know, Thanksgiving, uh, Christmas holidays, when we get together with relatives. These are important things to turn over, whether we're able to do that professionally in the classroom or whether we do that with with our immediate family or with extended family. I mean, these are issues that we're going to be running into. Right. Um, Our students, our children are going to have different kinds of choices when it comes to, you know, reproduction and, and childbirth and uh, and, their, and our own health, you know, as far as things that we're going to do. And I think some things are going to be fantastic. Uh, I think that CRISPR, you know, has both that potential to be a Frankenstein and also a miraculous healer uh, that we, we've just dreamed about in terms of the kinds of, of ailments and, and diseases and conditions that it's going to be able to help us help us cure. So we we are becoming hybrids, right? We are becoming cyborgs. In fact, didn't does Time Magazine, I didn't pull this up, but isn't there a headline where they've got like a, the Apple Watch is only the beginning um, and it shows like, I don't know if it's a you know, virtual projection of, of chips and things like that, but you know, we're becoming hybrids with our devices and biologically that's going to become even more of a reality. It is for some people even now. Absolutely. Where do you want to take us next? Well, um, I would like to give you, fair listeners, a warning from The Verge on July 26, 2017. Do, do not blindly trust companies selling solar eclipse glasses on Amazon.com. And it's not like they're not legit. You just don't know if they're legit or not. And it's, it's a fascinating article that I think inspires a lot of interesting questions related to, you mentioned earlier that Jeff Bezos is uh, uh, the richest man on earth now, um, but Amazon, uh, and I, I have another uh, kind of related topic to that in, in a moment, um, Amazon is uh, uh, a buzz now with solar eclipse glasses because there's going to be a really incredible uh, solar eclipse in the United States where you could go uh, anywhere from Oregon to South Carolina 
um, and see a total solar eclipse. But of course, that comes with some risk to your eyes, uh, you know, staring into the sun and such. And so a lot of people have taken advantage of this by offering solar eclipse glasses on Amazon. The problem of, with that, of course, is that not everyone is selling legitimate solar eclipse uh, safe glasses. And some people are noticing that the product they're getting in the mail is not one that's been certified or has anything other than, uh, you know, tinted um, panes of plastic um, in the solar eclipse glasses. So I guess I have to start with, Wes, are you anywhere in the solar eclipse zone? We are just south of it. Um, however, <laughs> we have school starting on the 21st. So, <laughs> yeah, I I don't know how that's going to work. You know, I was mentioning that to my wife the other day. I was like, <laughs> glasses, you know, for kids to go outside and try to look. So from what I've seen, and I think we had a Geek of the Week a few weeks ago about a Google project where they're going to crowdsource photos from it and show, you know, what it actually looks like as it crosses the United States. Um, yeah, we're going to we're going to be over half um, obscured, you know, but we're not going to be fully obscured. Where my, pa- my parents are up in Kansas, so I think it's going, we were up, you know, in Jackson Hole in your neck of the woods, and it's going to go right over there and then heading northeast. And so you only have to go maybe less than an hour, 45 minutes north of my parents to be in the, the direct band of, of the eclipse. So what are your plans, Jason? When I was in Jackson, Wyoming, they were sort of like battening down the hatches, ready for craziness with probably thousands of people coming to town, filling the streets and um, causing a lot of mayhem with just so many bodies. So is Missoula going to be uh, chock full of, uh, of out-of-town foreigners there to witness the event? We're not um, in a full eclipse path. Apparently, you'll be able to see a partial eclipse here. But my understanding from my lovely wife is that there's a uh, there's a drive from here, I think three or four hours from here, where you can see it in Idaho. So she's talked about doing that. Um, my hesitation with that was the same as yours, Wes, is that it's close to the beginning of the school year um, for my program. And um, the closer the year gets, the, the less flexibility I have in my schedule. Um, but I hear that even when you are not near the path, it should be a pretty interesting thing to see. So I am really great to hear. It's really great to hear that there will be a lot of uh, uh, amateur photography available and collected by folks like Google so that you can see it in various parts of the United States. And I guess we should just ver- find out where you can get verified glasses, right? I yeah. mean, that's yeah. it's like a fake news, you know, verify the source, all that. Well, and I, uh, I want to mention something related to that for just a second that, and it just so happens that I have my, my charger with me. Um, you know, Amazon is a risky buy if you don't know what you're purchasing, right? And the reviews help sometimes and that sort of thing. But the, the thing I thought of when I read this article was that USB-C, which is the new standard, uh, that will slowly start taking over for not only USB ports, but also charging of any devices, uh, for a while, USB-C uh, cables and chargers, uh, many of them on Amazon, USB-C is a very advanced protocol. It's not just a dumb current of, of, of electricity. There's actually a negotiation that goes on between your charger, the cable, and the computer that you're on that's being charged by USB-C. And a lot of people were selling devices that did not have standards-based chargers, and they were literally toasting their devices. And um, I, my, my Chromebook is a USB-C charge device, and the charger that came with it's kind of big and bulky. And so I spent some time, and I went with, you know, known quantities, Anchor's a popular brand name 
for chargers. And so I have my anchor charger and I have my anchor cable that, you know, plug into my Chromebook and that's uh, been great for me. But, you know, I think that it's, it is a buyer beware situation, especially when you're talking about low cost items where there are hundreds of options to go with. And so definitely reading reviews and kind of knowing what you're buying is a critical part of that process. Definitely. Um, well, we've got about probably 15 minutes or so left in the show. Um, I would love for us to talk just briefly about cryptocurrency. And I want to give a shout out to our son, Alexander, who <clears throat> um, actually tweeted this video. Or no, he didn't tweet it. He shared it on, on, his, on his Facebook. <clears throat> the video is by a channel called Three Blue, One Brown. Ever wonder how Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies work? a link to a radio lab episode and coincidentally uh vicky is uh recommending a radio lab episode which i'm gonna have to check out it's from july 27th that one was called um well i don't know what the title of it was actually well no peggy's dropped in the link um it was about computer science and ethics uh topics and the actual let's see if it can come up uh the one i wanted to is called The Ceremony, and it's about cryptocurrencies. The one that she referenced on July 27th was called Breaking News. The, this this is an amazing episode because this Radiolab <clears throat> show is about how a cryptocurrency other than uh, Bitcoin was started as far as the math and the trust that is needed to do this. And the video that my son had shared, um, which tangentially related, I, I got him to tweet on his account, and and he's been an egg on Twitter for a long time, and he's he uh, got his updated profile and talking about digital footprint and all that stuff. So I was pretty excited to have him do that and encouraging him to share stuff like this, you know, that that he gets into. I think cryptocurrency is a huge thing for us to be, you know, aware of and to understand from an economic standpoint. It's fascinating how the monetary system actually works. Right? We went off the gold standard in the United States during the Nixon administration. You can't, you know, trade paper currency for, you know, physical gold anymore. And, you know, based, and, and this video is the best explanation of, of cryptocurrencies that I've seen, where basically you have a barter system where, you know, a group would be exchanging, uh, IOUs and then eventually, you know, those could end up being traded for, for dollars. So Jason, are you a cryptocurrency, um, you know, pathological investor? And do you think Bitcoin will change the world tomorrow? Um, I have not invested in any cryptocurrency and not because I, um, I'm not interested in it. It's partly because I don't understand it enough and I try not to, you know, throw money at things that I don't understand. I guess maybe my stock portfolio would suggest otherwise. But, um, the bottom line is, is that, uh, it's a computer, pretty confusing market. And I'm looking forward to this video because I would like to understand this phenomenon more. I do agree, though, that, I mean, I think a universal currency that's untraceable, um, that uh, uh, is able to work in this kind of dynamic digital environment is going to be something of our future, whether we like it or not. And I think there is a reason that it has survived despite many challenges from governments around the world that really don't want a competitor for currencies. And the thing that's the underlying technology and, and really concept here is the blockchain. And I will not pretend to be an expert on the blockchain, but my limited understanding is, you know, Bitcoin has every transaction recorded and broadcast. So there is no privacy. You know, if you or I are opening our wallet with cash, 
we really have no idea other than the person or place we got the money from where that money was previously and the transactions that it was involved in. With Bitcoin, however, you know every single transaction that has ever happened and that has very interesting implications yep. for privacy. Some of these other cryptocurrencies are addressing that where there is some anonymity. Um, it is just, it is fascinating. And the blockchain itself as a technology has implications to, to potentially change many other things besides the way we pay for, you know, goods and services. I'm fascinated by Apple now is about to, with iOS 11, have a payment system that we can send money back and forth to folks just directly, you know, through iOS uh, using Apple as our bank. And I was, and I need to get the name of it, but our cousins here in um, in Vermont use an app all the time when they've got friends who pay for a soccer, you know, jersey or, you know, get food when their kids are out or whatever. They're constantly using this uh, this app. It's not PayPal. It's something else I think starts with a V. I'll get it and drop it into the show notes. But uh, I, I think these are really, really huge things that, you know, on the cryptocurrency side, Hopefully we're not going to outlaw math, right? And math is what underlies all this. And it's stuff that, you know, maybe you could make an argument that most people in society don't understand how the currency system works and, and whether it's macroeconomics and, and interest rates and all that in the stock market or, or microeconomics. But I think these are fascinating articles and I'll look forward to, to your feedback, Jason, because it's definitely the best explanation of this that I've seen where they're just, you know, laying out from scratch. Here's how you can build a cryptocurrency. This is how Bitcoin came to be. Absolutely. Yep. I'm glad to have access to it. All right. Um, I have time for another one. Well, let's go ahead and do it. Um, Adobe announced uh, last week that Flash is not dead, but it will be dead in 2020. And I got to tell you, there are hordes of middle school Flash game players that will be totally saddened by the fact that their Flash games will no longer work um, in in three years. So uh, the bottom line is that uh, Adobe has said they will stop supporting Flash in 2020, which means that uh, which I which I think means that they will no longer update or provide security updates for the Flash plugin. Uh, that of course introduces massive uh, a risk into the Flash universe because Flash is very co constantly updated because it is a, a, a kind of a harbinger of security issues, um, and that effectively means that the transition, which probably began in 2010 with the release of the iPad, uh, will be finally complete 10 years later as Flash is no longer available. So I guess I'll start with, Wes, are you, are you uh, uh, cursing the day that Flash uh, is no longer a reality in your life? Absolutely not. You know, I remember when when Steve Jobs was making these moves with the with the iPhone and with iOS to essentially kill Flash, really, you know, thinking what a bold move that is on a corporate level to to go after, um, you know, something that, you know, it, it was just a a real. It, it was a, it was a time where I think someone, which of course Jobs isn't a code, wasn't a coder himself. He was much more on the creative artistic side of things and the marketing and business side of things. Um, but had a lot of insight because of his access to engineering teams about, you know, huge uh, shortcomings that that entire protocol had and, and good reasons why 
for the long term of uh, you know success and benefit of the web and consumers, it was going to be better to go with with some other um, protocols, namely I think HTML5 and open protocols like that. So nope, I celebrate it. I think that we want to keep the web open. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting when we have different proprietary solutions, and and sometimes you know things. Um, I'm thinking of banking and, you know, there's, there's a lot of, of times and places where there are proprietary solutions that are wonderful and we utilize them. But when it comes to the web and really the core tools that power communication, not just today, but into the foreseeable future, those need to be, you know, openly uh, accessible. And if, if not completely open, openly licensable and just, you know, and they, they need to run cool. They don't need to heat up my device. You know, I remember how hot laptops would get running flash and, yep. you know, it was a real problem. And that was a problem on mobile as well as other devices. So I celebrate. How about you? Is that going to have a significant impact on, on distance learning in Montana and elsewhere as we've got these artifacts that different companies have created over the years and used flash and macromedia? Um, there are still a lot of people that are selling uh, digital objects that are based in Flash that, of course, becomes really challenging for us in figuring out how to replace them. Um, interestingly enough, a lot of openly licensed content um, is stuck in Flash and without money or resources to fix those things. Some of those will become essentially dead technologies as Flash is depreciated. Um, but I think, generally speaking, moving away from Flash is going to be a wonderful thing for distance learning. Um, I remember reading um, some of the discussion in 2010, and, and you probably remember, Wes, that uh, uh, Steve Jobs was so passionate about the Flash issue, he released an open letter uh, to answer criticisms that the iPad was not using Flash and uh, you know, very aggressively laid out the case for the fact that, that Flash was not the... Um, uh, it was not the uh, uh, panacea that people were making it out to be. But I remember a lot of the discussion around that topic at the time was that was twofold. The first one was that you mentioned battery life and, and the heating up of devices. Um, the iPad would have had a battery life of about 90 minutes uh, in 2010 if it was uh, if it was running flash. But the secondary part of that was that a lot of people applauded Steve Jobs' move to HTML5 because if they hadn't done so, a year later when they moved towards uh, an open app store environment, if people had built those, those applications largely in Flash, it would have slowed down the development of, of applications because the typical high-end application in Flash would have used such an extraordinary amount of battery and uh, it created so much heat and instability for the system, it might have actually held off the mobile revolution that we experienced. And so, um, you know, it's sad that some content might be lost, but it's it's time. A couple of good comments from the chat room, and thank you all for for chiming in. Uh, Vicky reminds us that Scratch version 3 better be out before Flash is dead uh, because it still does require Flash. And it's interesting how the Chrome browser handles Flash now, right? By default, it doesn't turn it on, but when it's needed, you 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 can have it. You can change your settings, but I think this is the default. You click and enable it on a page-by-page -page basis. But Scratch is certainly, I think, a huge educational um you know, platform and uh, website and, and uh, coding environment that we should be sharing with students utilizing. And I'm sure that Mitch Resnick and the MIT Media Lab is, is hard at work at that. They've got a couple years to go. The other chat room comment, Jamie Camp got it right. It is Venmo, V-E-N-M-O dot com. That is the currency uh, trading app that my cousins use and Jamie said some friends of theirs use as well. 
um, pretty interesting. Had not ever heard of that before, but in the context of, of currencies and, and money exchange, that's, uh, things are taking off. Uh, I kind of wish we had another hour to talk, although I, I do need to go to bed. It's, it's the East Coast here, so it's, uh, it's 11 o'clock, but, um, I want to mention two quick security articles and a SpaceX article. And then Jason, if you've got another one or two to mention, we can close out with our geeks of the week, but it's almost, this is a sign of the times, right? ZDNet July 12th. And we didn't even mention it. Millions of Verizon customer records exposed in security laps. We just continue to have, this is like part of the normal, Hey, somebody got killed in Chicago or New York city this month. You know, <clears throat> we're hearing about millions of records from huge companies being, being compromised. And so we've said this before. If you're not using a two-step security, uh, feature on your bank, on your, your Gmail, on whatever other kinds of important accounts that you have that offer two-step, do that. <clears throat> and if you're not using a password manager, uh, like LastPass or 1Password, start doing that today. The other article that's really fascinating, and I heard this on the Security Now podcast that the Twit Network publishes. This was a personal blog post on July 7th by the user who's just called Justin. And no, it's not Justin Bieber or Justin Timberlake. But his article said, I got hacked and all I did or all I got was this new SIM card pretty fascinating. Basically, somebody went after him directly, uh, continued to call, I think, AT&T or Verizon, probably I shouldn't throw him under the bus without getting that right. So his cell phone company, until he didn't have to provide his password. And then they were able to re it was it was AT&T. Uh, and, and then they were able to reset his SIM card, and then take over his phone. He had two step verification turned on on his accounts. This is not an example of a random attack. This is a specific targeted attack where they're going after him. But again, the weak link of, of almost all security is the human element, the human being. And so once they found an AT&T um, you know, call representative <clears throat> that didn't require, that didn't follow protocol and require his passphrase, um, they were able to get reset. And he was just on a trip driving when his phone stopped working. And then he finally pieced this together. And he ended up losing, I think, some money out of PayPal. And because this article went viral, I think PayPal refunded it. But otherwise, he thought, you know, they wouldn't really care. And he was going to be out this money. So on the note of two-step verification, two-step through SMS, but actually that is a, a more vulnerable way. It's better to have two-step with SMS than to not have two-step. But you also can install apps um, like Google has one called Authenticator and there's others, and they allow you to receive your two-step codes via Wi-Fi or your cell phone data connection, whatever you have. So those are both pretty important tools. The last one I will not talk about that much, but it was one of the most fascinating articles from the past week. This is from Gavin's blog. Obviously, everyone reads that. Um, on July 15th, 2017, I think he <laughs> It was on Hacker Moon. Okay, I don't know what this site is either. But uh, his article says, will SpaceX become the world's biggest telecom provider? Probably. And he says, SpaceX now has a plan to launch almost 12,000 satellites into low space orbit and middle or middle Earth, or middle Earth orbit. Uh, low, low Earth orbit is what I want to say. And, you know, we've heard about the Tesla Model 3 that's come out and hoopla about that. All the self-driving cars out there are going to need high-speed internet connections. And so Tesla very well may become the largest service provider on a global scale, providing satellite-based high-speed connectivity 
anywhere on the planet. And that article just kind of blew my mind. So sorry for the string of consciousness, three articles there, but any thoughts about security or SpaceX taking over your, actually maybe solving your internet bandwidth woes in rural Montana, Jason, wouldn't that be great yeah. if Elon Musk took care of you that way? I'd love that. If he could actually just maybe drop from a satellite a fiber wire and I just plug it in, we'd be good to go. So I think that's a, that's a great call. Um, the, the article about the SIM card was absolutely fascinating because that's someone who knows what he's doing and takes all the advice that folks like, like you and me, Wes, uh, uh, dole out all the time, like this is the absolute way to be secure. As it turns out, there is no absolute way to be secure. Now, that said, you're also correct. Like, you know, doing a little bit is better than doing nothing. Doing a lot's better than a little bit, even if you're not 100% protected, right? It's going to cover you in the vast majority of scenarios. But it was a pretty fascinating story that, you know, um, uh, no matter what you do, there's there's risk in, in these processes. So um, I'm going to add one last uh, shout out here because it's a, a kind of a headline story. Uh, Snopes, which is the um, 20-year-old uh, website that it kind of battles uh, false information on the Internet and, dare I say, fake news, um, is in a bizarre situation where it's fighting with its Internet service provider um, in, in order to control its own website. And I, I couldn't even begin to describe to you the strange series of events. So I encourage you, the article uh, we're citing um, is a, in, a very interesting article uh, about the... Um, uh, the process uh, from the New York Times, but I do suggest that you, you read through the process. But I did give $25 to Snopes last week uh, in hopes that they can win the legal battle that they need to get control of their website back. Um, I think in this era, um, as many resources we can that, you know, attempt to, you know, evaluate news and information uh, is is a it's a pretty great thing. So we you know want to be kind of on top of that. So uh, definitely read the uh, Snopes um, uh, plight and consider giving to their cause. All right. Well, let's jump out with geeks of the week. I'll go first and then uh, let you shut us down, Jason. Um, I have actually just today confirmed with Peggy that I'm going to be a, a jump in guest filling in for uh, for someone, which I'm grateful for the opportunity on Classroom 2.0 Live Saturday. Uh, so I'm going to share a keynote that I had shared up in St. Mary's, Kansas about creativity, curiosity, and multimedia. And so if you can tune in, that will be at noon Eastern, 11 Central, 10 Mountain, or 9 Pacific. But my primary geek of the week is really cool, and I learned about it at that conference um, from the tech coordinator, Dina, in Oakley, Kansas. It's a website called ShoutKey. And... You know, when you're in a, a, a professional development setting, a lot of times you need to get a web link to people and you don't have something set up in advance for a, a, a workshop or, you know, some kind of professional development. And you can use a URL shortener like, you know, goo.gl for Google, tiny URL, bit.ly. <clears throat> one of the hazards of those, of course, is that if you get one letter wrong or one number wrong, you probably are going to go to another site and you have absolutely you know, no control, no idea what that person is going to go to. So one way I've addressed that, copying and, and, and uh, trying to mimic one of my heroes of EdTech, Tony Vincent, is to use my own URL shortener. So at least if someone mistypes, they're going to go to one of my shared web links, not somebody else's. But this website is called ShoutKey. It's ShoutKey.com. And what it does is create web links 
which expire from five minutes to 24 hours after you share them, but it uses regular words. And so you're not getting some cryptic set of uh, of links, you know, you're, you're actually just getting, uh, a regular English word. So I'll drop, for instance, the links in to our, uh, website and I'll have this ex- expire in 24 hours. So if you're listening to this more than that, it's not going to work. Um, but it said spuds. So if you go to right now to shoutkey.com slash spuds, S P U D S, you're going to be on the EdTech situation room. Um, you know, links. And, and so anyway, I thought that was fantastic. And this is a tool that, you know, could be useful in, in so many contexts. And of course, the fact that they expire is the reason why they can use regular words. They're not going to run out of words because all of their words become available on a 24 hour rotating cycle. So check it out. Shout key. That's really, really freaking cool. <laughs> like that's, and it, like I just tried it and the word it gave me was this, like T-H-I-S. Right. So, yeah, that's awesome. And especially great with kids. Right. Because if you are yep. trying to share that way in a, in a kind of spontaneous sort of way, uh, if you've ever tried to have, uh, um, you know, people type in long URLs before, it's 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 kind of a nightmare. So that's super great. Uh, thanks, Wes. That's an awesome share. Um, I'd like to share this week a little project I've been working on uh, the last six weeks or so. Um, I am you know, very conscious about climate change, um, as I'm sure uh, many of you are as well. And I don't think it's going to be one solution. I think it's going to be a thousand solutions that are going to get us out of climate change, uh, the implications of climate change. But one of the ways that I've tried to contribute positively is that by, by making sure that all of my devices are charged uh, by a renewable means. And so one of the things I've set up is I'm using this um, Anchor 21 watt dual USB solar charger, um, which is available right now from Amazon for $60, although it's pretty frequently on sale. Uh, so keep an eye out for, for sale prices. Um, I have that hanging in my front window now where it's every day that there is sun out in Montana. And luckily there is a lot of sun out in Montana this time of year. Um, I'm charging one of those big portable battery packs that you've probably either seen on people or advertised that have 10,000 um, uh, uh, milliamp hours or 20,000 milliamp hours of storage space on it. But I am then charging those large batteries and then using those at night to charge my devices. And so um, it's not probably a cost savings. Uh, frankly, your your phone and your tablets don't take up a lot of expense when it comes to power. You can charge an iPhone for like $2 a year for uh, even the most expensive power in the United States. It's not that expensive to charge a device like that um, over a series of weeks, months, or a year. But I think it's some of the way we're going to be able to deal with evolving climate change um, is to find alternative means to kind of cobble together a power um, a strategy, not unlike uh, um, uh, Elon Musk's uh, uh, household revolutionary battery. I think there's a lot of ways that we could be harnessing power that's available to us um, to power devices. So that's Anchor's uh, a solar charger um, uh, available at Amazon.com. Sounds good. Well, folks can find me online at speedofcreativity.org. I've just posted a little thing I'm pretty excited about, a choose-your-own-adventure video and lessons learned from that. Uh, That was a big project this week, and uh, I love choose-your-own-adventure books. So anyway, speedofcreativity.org, and I am W. Fryer on the Twitters.
Excellent. And my name is Jason Neifer. I blog at blog.ncc.org, and we officially released yesterday our Chromebook app list, which is our resource that we're uh, working on for schools that are either moving towards Chromebooks or on Chromebooks and want to find great web-based applications to replace desktop applications you might have used with students before. Blog.ncce.org is the location of that uh, uh, effort. And I am on Twitter at TechSavvyTeach, where I post links uh, that I'm reading um, uh, to try to kind of elevate the conversation. Um, this is the EdTech Situation Room. We're a mostly weekly podcast uh, that, that deals with uh, technology news with a, an educational focus. We broadcast on Wednesday nights, usually live. If you uh, check out our Twitter feed, EdTech at EdTechSR, you can get notifications of when we're broadcasting live. We love to have people in the chat room. Um, to uh, talk along with during the show. And if you're interested in being a guest, also ping us via Twitter, and we'd love to discuss maybe bringing you on to EdTechSR. But we're here on Wednesday nights, uh, 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central, and um, you know, live to the rest of the world via YouTube. So join us next week and in future weeks where we will talk about the world of technology. Good night, everybody. <laughs>